I'm going to take us through another passage tonight in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've been doing a series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and this has sort of been our pandemic series. Uh, we've been in the middle of a pandemic, and it's almost over. At least that's what it's looking like. That's what I, I'm, I'm hoping for. Uh, but technically, uh, you know, COVID is, is still, still among us. The last year and a half, um, as I'm sure you all know, um, this has been probably one of the biggest disruptions that we've ever seen. You know, it's disrupted the economy, uh, shuttered businesses, it's altered the political balance of power. Um, but one of the reasons that COVID has been so disruptive um, is actually the fact that when it first came out, we didn't really know what it was. Um, so if you remember back to kind of early 2020, uh, late 2019, people started getting sick. Um, but we didn't know uh, what was causing it. Um, and, and even when we kind of put it under a microscope and gave it a name and called it COVID, uh, we, we weren't even sure how to treat it. You know, so there were all of these different drugs that people tried to use uh, that have complicated names like hydroxy, what is it, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, there's another one called, what is it, rim, remdesivir. All these different drugs, and we, did, we weren't even sure kind of which ones were good or which ones were bad. I mean, now even with a vaccine, there are some people who aren't, taking the vaccine because what if it makes it worse? That's not a statement, by the way, pro or anti-vaccine. <laughs> so we, we, we didn't know what the thing fully was, and especially at the beginning, we didn't know how to treat it. Tonight, uh, we're going to look at a passage where the exact same principle applies spiritually. Um, one of the classic metaphors that Jesus uses to describe himself is uh, the metaphor of the great physician. Uh, so now, what's a physician? Um, actually, <laughs> some of you know, um, I have to eat four apples a day because I have four physicians in my family. Um, so uh, yeah, have mercy on me. But, but essentially, a, a physician, a physician is someone who's trained to know more about you than you do, if you kind of think about it that way. So like, you know, you're feeling ill, um, you're feeling kind of a little funny, and, and, and you're not, you're, you're the one who's experiencing it, but you can't actually diagnose yourself. Um, what do you have to do? You have to go um, into a, a, a physician, physician's office who's someone who's trained uh, to look inside and to see and understand things about your, your, your body that you don't see and that you don't understand. And so he's the only one who can really tell you what's wrong with you. Uh, and that's what we call a diagnosis. And that's so significant because without an accurate diagnosis, you can't ever heal. So the, the passage that we're going to look at tonight is a passage where Jesus plays the great physician. And he's going to look inside not just our bodies, but our souls, in order to give us a diagnosis that we desperately need if we're to be healed spiritually. And if you understand Jesus' diagnosis, I want to suggest to you that you'll understand how people work, you'll understand how families work, you'll understand how politics works, you'll maybe even understand how world history works, perhaps even how you work. So, our text is uh, in Mark chapter 7. Um, for this one tonight, no, no slides. So, so you'll actually really want to grab a Bible um, to follow along. This is Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? 
He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that's, uh, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, the evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And as I like to say, if I were Presbyterian, this is the part where you'd all have to say, thanks be to God. But I'm not Presbyterian, so you don't have to do that. So, here's our passage, and I'm going to look at this uh, by seeing two things that it's going to tell us. Number one, uh, it's going to tell us a problem that we don't want to face. And then number two, it's going to give us a solution that we can barely believe. So number one, the problem we don't want to face. Number two, the solution we can barely believe. So, first of all, uh, this is a passage that's about a confrontation. Uh, It's a confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were strict religious Jews. Uh, So, in verses 1 through 5, they're attacking Jesus because when his disciples would have a meal, um, evidently they didn't wash their hands in the right way. Uh, Not very COVID compliant. And this gets at the Pharisees. They're they're ticked off about this because, as it says in verse 5, it goes against the tradition of the elders. Now, what are these traditions? Uh, These were traditions that were added um, to what's called the Law of Moses. So the Law of Moses is the Old Testament law that's given in the first five books of the Bible. And in particular for our story, uh, the part of the law called the clean laws are are the, the, the ones that are in view here. The clean laws were these laws that used dirt as a metaphor for sin. And this was in order to teach the Israelites that just as uh, you, you can come into the presence of a king only if your body is, is clean and not like covered in dirt and grime. So you can't come into the presence of God if your soul is covered with sin. And to get the lesson across, the law of Moses taught that a person was either clean or unclean based on whether you ate the proper food or made the proper sacrifices or performed the proper washings. Uh, depending on all those things, that, that determined whether or not you were ceremonially clean or ceremonially unclean. But the Pharisees actually went beyond the law of Moses, and they added to the law the tradition of the elders. Uh, so this was like extra legalese about how to wash and how much to wash and you know, where to wash in order to, to 
be considered clean. And so they're mad at Jesus here because he, he's writing off their rules. He, he's ignoring them. Um, and actually, he goes even further. He critiques them. And so starting in verse 6, Jesus says to them, you know, Pharisees, look, there are two problems here with your traditions. First of all, he says, your traditions are not of God. So that's his point if you look at verse 8. So in verse 8, he's basically saying, look, you people have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So in other words, you know, you Pharisees have replaced God's truth with man's tradition, which is just empty ritual. And then in verses 9 through 13, he kind of uses an illustration to get the point across. For the sake of time, we're not going to look at that today. But I think, you know, you can kind of see how we actually kind of do the same thing as well. And we call it going through the motions, where there are all kinds of things that we do, um, perhaps in a setting like this, such as worship, hearing a, a message from God's word. And those things are actually really, really helpful for encountering God and, and, and hearing from him. But it's easy to do what the Pharisees did, to kind of turn those into empty rituals and to kind of make them so complicated that you're actually missing the point, which is actually to know and experience God. So that's Jesus' first critique. But then he says that there's actually an even deeper problem with their man-made traditions. And that's that they're based on a false diagnosis. So, so all the fine print about when and where and, and how um, to, to wash your hands before you eat, to Jesus are a demonstration of the fact that the Pharisees completely misunderstand the nature of sin and holiness, of right and wrong, of good and evil, and even more fundamentally, the nature of what it means to be human. So what is the false diagnosis? Well, this is what Jesus talks about starting in verse 14. So in verses 14 and 15, Jesus uh, says, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, <clears throat> Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. So there it is. Like, this is Jesus' thesis statement. Uh, you know, just throwing a bone to all of you people in school right now who are probably thinking about essays and, and thesis statements. There's Jesus' thesis statement. He says, all of humanity, all of how life really works can kind of be understood if you get this principle. So uh, what, now we've got to kind of look at what it means. Well, what Jesus is doing here, particularly in verse 14, in verse 14 he says that nothing outside a man can make him unclean. He's challenging one of humanity's most cherished beliefs, I mean, the, 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 the cherished challenging here is the idea that the problem is out there. The problem is out there. That's the false diagnosis. I mean, this is a, a diagnosis that has a long pedigree in our, in our Western culture. You know, so maybe when you were in, in, I don't know, sophomore world studies or whatever, uh, whenever you would have taken that class. For me, it was my sophomore year of high school. Uh, you might have heard about John Locke. You know, he's a famous philosopher. Uh, 17th century, one of the ideas that John Locke was most famous for is the idea that human beings are what he called a tabula rasa, uh, which is a, a phrase that means a blank slate. Uh, we're born into this world uh, as, as a blank slate. Uh, that means that the ways that you act, uh, the ways that you think, uh, the ways that, you're, that, that, that you are, are basically the product of whatever the world around you writes on the blank slate. Uh, so, for example, you know, let's say that you are someone who is blessed with good manners. Well, it's because you were raised in a good family. Uh, or, you know, let's say that you think the right thoughts. 
um, probably a sign that you got the right education, quote unquote. So in other words, it's the forces outside of you that shape you. That was kind of one of his main ideas. Now, of course, in real life, you know, we all know it's not really that black and white because you, know, you can have two kids in the same family. You can have two kids in the same school. And it's obvious that they can totally turn out differently. Uh, and in fact, you know, if you've got siblings, you're probably living proof of that. <laughs> so, so we're a blend of both nurture and nature. But what Jesus is saying here is that even though nurture can influence us, it's not at the root of our problem. At the root of our problem is something not in our nurture, but in our nature. And if you disagree, let me just give you an example. Uh, so here's an example. Imagine you're walking along, and you see a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch. Now, what are you going to do if you see a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch? You're going to touch the paint. <laughs> You know, don't, 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 don't try to deny it. You're probably going to want to touch the paint. Well, why do you want to touch the paint? It's not because of the sign. You know, it's because of you. <laughs> the sign might have aroused your desire to touch the paint, but the sign didn't make you do it. You did it. It was because of something inside of you, not something outside of you. Now, this principle of Jesus, that, that, it, you know, that it's not about the problem out there, which is what we think, this principle is so fundamental and so universal and one of the easiest places you can see it lived out is in children. So, uh, for example, some of you may know Tim Cedarland. Tim started Thrive nine years ago. Uh, Tim tells a story about a time when one of his sons was like two or three years old, and he flushed an apple down the toilet. <laughs> and, of course, the toilet clogged. And uh, he was too embarrassed to tell his parents. So, you know, eventually, after hours and hours of kind of fighting the plumbing, Tim finally fishes an apple out of the toilet. And so he asks his son, he says, son, did you do this? And he said, dad, the devil made me do it. He's basically saying, like, look, it wasn't me. It was him. <laughs> it was the devil. The devil made me do it. The problem isn't in here. It's out there. And it's not just kids who do it. Grown-ups do it, too. In the garden, Adam sins and he blames Eve. Eve sins, and she blames the serpent. <laughs> the devil made me do it. On the freeway, someone cuts you off, and you get mad. Your friend in the passenger seat says, you know, hey, man, like, why are you so angry? And of course, you know, it's never because you have anger issues. It's always because that idiot cut me off every time. <laughs> or, it's, you know, on Wall Street, a company gets caught cutting corners, and what does their press release say? Mistakes were made. <laughs> Each of these responses is another way of saying the problem is out there. <laughs> the devil made me do it. It's a way of shirking responsibility, actually, for our own behavior. And one of the things that's so brilliant about Jesus' analysis here is that he shows that religious people can be some of the worst offenders. They just hide it behind all their rules. So, <clears throat> what are rules? Think about this for a minute. Essentially, if the problems in our lives are actually all out there, outside of us, then rules essentially are fences that protect you from the sinful world all around you. And that means that if you follow the rules, if you refuse to drink or chew or go with girls who do, as they say, then that means that you can be protected from all of the evil world that's trying to get you. And yet the Pharisees, in this passage, they show that it doesn't work. 
Because instead of protecting them, the rules corrupt them. The Pharisees are so good, actually, at following all the rules that their rule following just leads them to become proud and conceited. And they begin to look down on all the people who are not good enough to follow all the rules. And so actually what the rules do for for religious people like the Pharisees is they become a whitewashed facade that hide all of the ugly, rotten hearts underneath. Let me just give you two examples of this. So I've met people, maybe you've met people, um, who have grown up in really strict, pretty sheltered religious households. And and they've grown up following all the rules, doing all the right Christian things. But as soon as they get out of the house, they've gone on and dramatically rejected all of those things. Why is that? It's it's because ultimately all the sheltering, all the homeschooling, all the church going, as good as those things can be, those things may actually be hiding a heart that really has no desire to follow God. And so long as there's no more, whenever there's no more pressure to actually fake it, you won't. Let me give you another example. This is why it never surprises me anymore um, when I see Christians' lives that totally implode. Um, so, for example, shortly after high school, um, when, I, when I graduated high school, I remember for a, about two, with a period of about two years after that, um, there were about five of my friends that I'd gone to youth group with uh, whose parents got divorced. And it was really shocking because these were families that went to our church, um, were heavily involved in our church, um, they even led ministries inside the church, and outwardly they were, they were model Christians. But inwardly, there must have been something going on. You know, who am I to know what it was? But something must have been going on that eventually boiled over and the facade fell apart. Now, back then, it, it, was, it was a real shock to the system, um, but it doesn't shock me as much now because rules maybe fences, but they don't have any power to change your heart. It says in the book of Colossians that all of these things have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed restrictions on the flesh, but they have no ability to, to, to basically change the flesh, to paraphrase there. So at the end of the day, religious person, non-religious person, all of us are wired the same way. All of us are wired to think that the problem must be out there. It must be with him, must be with her, must be with it, must be with my circumstances. And so this goes on to explain so much about why our culture functions the way it does. We're functioning as a culture right now with this, this false diagnosis at the very heart of things. We believe that we're in a story as a culture where we're the victims being preyed upon by outside forces. And if we believe that, what that's going to lead to is a response not of self-control, but of stuff control. Not of self-control, but of stuff control. That'll lead to a response where we try to control all the things in our environment, thinking that if we can just engineer the right set of circumstances, then we'll be happy. Uh, Mark Sayers is a guy, he's a cultural commentator, and he says that even though our secular culture isn't Christian, it actually has its own version of a salvation story just like the, the Christian story of creation, fall, redemption. In the secular salvation narrative, uh, Eden, kind of this, this primeval time when everything was right as it should be, in the secular narrative, that is to be in touch with your true self, to be connected to your inner child, you know, or to, to your, most, your inmost authentic self. That's kind of the, the, the Edenic idea. But then the, the fall in the secular story is when the realities and responsibilities of life come as an interruption. 
So for example, when, when you experience disappointment, when, when your dreams don't go the way that you had hoped, when you have unmet expectations, when you have to deal with adulting, <laughs> basically anything that puts limits on you, that keeps you from being free to be who you believe yourself to be and to do what gives you pleasure. That's the secular version of the fall. And in the secular narrative, salvation then is actually getting in touch with who you really are and what makes you happy and achieving that. And the way that that salvation takes place is by throwing off limits. It's by liberating yourself from society's expectations um, and others' expectations so that you can be free to be who you feel that you are and to do what you want to do. You know, here's some, some like... <laughs> like some resonance with, with some of this stuff, because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in Hollywood movies. It's in Disney movies. The, the narrative is salvation is to, to, to be free, to be what you want to be, to do what you want to do, so that you can believe what you want to believe, so you can sleep with whom you want to sleep with. And that's why when people go through a midlife crisis, what we see is that they're going to try to change outward circumstances, change jobs, get a divorce, you know, go, go travel all in an attempt to get in touch with what really makes you happy. This also, by the way, this is why our, our culture worships science. Science is kind of a pseudo-savior um, in a secular culture because it's through science that we can have the ability to conquer forces outside of us that seem to harm us. So, for example, like, think about the way that science is trying to overcome the limits of nature. That technology is kind of seen as this way that we can overcome the limits of things like aging or, or the, the gender that we're born with. Or even the limits of having to wait like 24 hours to get a package from Amazon. <laughs> technology is a pseudo-savior in a secular culture. Consumerism is a pseudo-savior in a secular culture. Consumerism gives you unlimited options if you're the consumer and it gives you unlimited wealth if you're the producer. So the idea, you know, if the idea is that all of our problems are out there with outside forces, with outside limits, then you're going to have a culture that looks and functions a lot like ours. But, but, what Jesus is saying here, it doesn't just explain our culture, it actually explains a whole lot about ourselves. Uh, so, Adam and Eve, back in the garden, why is it that the very first thing that they did after they sinned, was to cover themselves with fig leaves. The reason was that it was an attempt to cover their nakedness. They were trying to hide their sin, their sense of shame at being exposed, at being found out. And when you've grasped that, that, that that's what we as humans are hardwired to do, everything begins to make sense. You know, when Adam blames his wife, it's just another covering. It's just another way of hiding the fact that the problem is not out there. The problem is actually in here. When Eve blames the serpent, it's just another covering. It's another way of trying to live in denial of the fact that the devil didn't make them do it. They actually did it. And this is the exact same thing that we do to this day. To even admit that maybe we're the ones who are in the wrong. Uh, you know, maybe we're the ones who were at fault. Is such a scary thing. You know, it's as scary <laughs> as being found naked in the presence of a holy God. And that is why we deny, we minimize, we avoid, we blame shift. We use all these different tactics 
as fig leaves to try to hide from ourselves the fact that maybe the problem is not out there, maybe the problem is actually in here. And the same thing applies to ways we try to control things, control the ways that other people perceive us, control the ways that we ourselves see us, control the ways that we look on social media. All of these things are just not self-control, but stuff control. Fig leaves that are trying to hide from ourselves the true nature of our disease. So by hook or by crook, we will do whatever it takes to prop up the false diagnosis that the problem is really out there because we're too terrified to admit it might actually be in here. The irony about all of this is that if, the pro- if we are stuck in the rut of believing this false diagnosis, then at the end of the day, we're never going to be able to heal. If we're stuck in prisons of our own blame and denial, then we're forever going to be living out of what psychologists call a false self. It's not real. <laughs> and if you, you know, as anyone who's ever been through Celebrate Recovery or Alcoholics Anonymous knows, the healing journey begins when you admit that you have a problem. What we need is some way to let down our defenses. What we need is some way to come out from behind the fig leaves that we've sown for ourselves where we can admit that all with us is not as it should be. That's the problem that Jesus confronts. That is the problem that we don't want to face. Now this takes us actually to point number two. Um, There's a solution to this um, that Jesus has provided us through the gospel and it's a solution that's so good I'm ca- I, would, I would call it a solution that is so good that we could barely believe it. So what's the solution? Um, let's look at verse 15. Um, verse 15 um, gives you part of what the solution is, where Jesus makes a really jarring statement. So he's, he's already said, uh, nothing outside a man can make him unclean. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. It's, the, it's sort of the second half of that statement that I want to I look at. I mean, this is a jarring thing for Jesus to say here, because what he's telling us is that, Locating our problems out there is a false diagnosis of our true condition. And instead, what he confirms here is actually our worst fear, that in reality, our problems are in here. Uh, What he says is that it's from our hearts that arises uh, the big list of things that he gives in verse 18. Uh, Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Um, I actually thought it was interesting. I counted the number of things in the list. There's 12, one for each of the disciples. (laughs) Jesus says that all of those things come from the heart. You can't just point the finger at someone else. You can't just point the finger at things out there. Jesus says it actually comes from in here. The story that we live in is not a story about everything rebelling against us. The story we live in is actually a story about us rebelling against God. Now, the reason why this is the beginning of the solution, um, just this week, I was talking with someone um, who has a family member who has what's basically, you know, an unidentified um, disorder, and the doctors can't diagnose it. Uh, If you can't really diagnose it, you don't know how to treat it. Jesus comes along, and he gives us our true diagnosis. He's the only one, the only doctor, who really can shoot straight enough with us to see past all of our tricks, all of our masks, all of our charades, all of our fig leaves, to say the real problem isn't your behavior. It's actually the human heart behind your behavior. 
the beliefs that drive that behavior. The real problem isn't your circumstances. It's how you respond to your circumstances. The real problem isn't bombs and warheads. It's the human heart that pulls the trigger. Jesus is the kind of doctor we really need because he's the only one who really tells us the truth about our hearts. So what we need is that. Like, we need someone who actually is honest enough to tell us the truth. But I want to suggest that, like, if that's all that Jesus is, if that's the only thing that he does as our great physician, then, then that would never be fully enough. Because if all you had were a set of clinical eyes, a set of eyes that were trained to, to look inside, to see everything that's wrong with you, then wouldn't that be our worst nightmare? <laughs> you know, imagine all the things that you've, you've ever done that you're ashamed of, just projected up onto this big screen right behind me. I mean, if all Jesus was was just a clinician who could just look at all of our, 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 our faults, all of the things that are wrong with us, and just put it up on his doctor's chalkboard and left it there, that would be our worst nightmare. So what we need is not just to be known with all of our flaws. We need someone who knows and sees all of our flaws and refuses to drop us. We need someone who is so committed to us that when the curtain is pulled back and the truth comes out, that instead of driving us away, they draw us in and they hold us close. A doctor like that is a compassionate doctor, someone who fully knows us and fully loves us at the same time. And actually, we need even one thing more than that, and that's we don't just need a, a doctor who is compassionate. We actually need a doctor who's competent. Um, what we need is a doctor who's able to heal us and who can heal us. You know, earlier we were saying that at the heart of our culture is this idea that all of our problems are out there in the form of outside forces, outside limits, but the solution that our culture would propose is actually that the solution is in here, that it's in us, that through human technology, through human ingenuity, we can come up with solutions to transcend our problems and experience freedom. So if you were to boil that down to a phrase, it would be sin outside, solution inside. That's the culture. Sin outside, solution inside. But the words of Jesus say, sin inside, solution outside. That if our evil thoughts and deeds ultimately come from our hearts, well then, obviously, we can't solve our own problem because we are the problem. <laughs> like, our problem is a part of us. You know, there's, there's an old story. I don't know if there's any, like, English literature people in here. There's an old story by these English playwrights, Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, it's called the Mikado. It's about this little Japanese village. Uh, I see a head nodding over there. Yeah, so basically it's a satire about kind of how absurd life is. There's this one point in the story um, where one of the main characters is sentenced to be executed by beheading. Uh, but the only problem is uh, he's the town executioner. And so he can't cut off his own head. <laughs> and so then there's this whole part uh, in, in the story, this whole you know, funny section where the townspeople realize that, well, someone else will have to die in his place since the executioner is literally unable to put himself to death. <laughs> the Bible says that apart from Christ, all of us are in bondage to the corrupted parts of ourselves. So this is what the Bible calls our flesh. We're enslaved to disoriented desires that lead us to pursue things that ultimately harm us, that ultimately harm others, that will always let us down. And that the only way to be set free from the flesh is to put the flesh to death. But here's the problem. <laughs> you know, uh, the guy in the play couldn't cut off his own head. We can't cut off our own sin. <laughs> 
The problem is, is that we, we can't put ourselves to death because those corrupted parts of ourselves are parts of ourselves. And so what we need is we need a competent doctor. We need a solution from outside, a great physician who's compassionate enough to want to help us, but also competent enough to be able to help us, to, to be able to cut out of ourselves the cancer that we don't even see. So what if, like in the story, there actually was someone who did all that? And what if there actually was someone who, like in the story, died in our place, who was a great physician who saw what was wrong with us, but who actually loved us enough to heal us by giving up his life? That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was the great physician, but he was the great physician who healed us by laying down his own life. Uh, you know, there's uh, one, one of the most probably significant of the miracles that Jesus does is when he heals people of leprosy. Because um, leprosy was a picture of sin. It was a picture of uncleanness. So when Jesus in the Gospels goes and heals the lepers, it's a demonstration of the fact that he is able to take upon himself um, the, their disease, but without being contaminated by it. And, and he's able to heal them. But why was Jesus able to do that? Why was Jesus able to touch a leper and, and not be contaminated by their contamination? And the reason is, is that when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus was touched not just by the leprosy of skin, but he was touched by the leprosy of sin. Because on the cross, all of our sin, all of the things inside of us, the things that we try to avoid, the things that we try to cover up with fig leaves, fell on Jesus' shoulders. He was the great physician who took all of those things upon himself, and when he died on the cross, he took all of those things and he put them to death so that we could be crucified to the flesh to live life according to the Spirit. Jesus didn't come to give good advice on how to fix ourselves. Jesus didn't come with rules about how to save ourselves. Jesus came as Savior. He came as someone who saw the depths of our disease. He wasn't scared away by it. He wasn't freaked out by it. But instead, he stepped toward us and he drew us close. He took our sin upon himself at the cost of his life. And he, and he did all of that so that we could be set free. Sin inside, solution outside. When you accept Jesus, when you get in touch with what he's done for you, then you can rest from trying to fix yourself. You can rest from trying to hide behind all the rules. Because in Jesus, we have a good physician who paid it all for us to be free. Um, I'm going to pray. And then as we transition to small groups tonight, um, we want to have some of our leaders um, be just sort of around this room. Um, and to offer a prayer for anyone who wants to receive it. Maybe there was something in the message tonight that just sort of highlighted to you that, man, um, there are things in my life that I've been trying to cover up with fig leaves when really I need to take these things to Jesus. Like, I can't let this thing keep living in me. I can't let this thing just, you know, kind of do me in. I need to take these things to Jesus. And the way to do that is through prayer. And so I'm going to pray for us. Um, we'll transition to small groups here in just a minute. And then um, maybe if there are one or two leaders that would want to volunteer just to kind of be maybe up here, up here, um, we'll just have a time if anyone wants to receive prayer uh, for that to happen, and then we'll move on to small groups. So.